Welcome to the Inspirational Australians podcast, where we chat to people making a difference in their communities and in the lives of others. And here is your host for today, Josh Griffin. Thanks for joining us for this week's Dose of Inspiration. I'm really excited to have someone uh, coming on today at short notice. So I do want to thank H.Y. William Chan. He's 30 from Sydney. And he's worked towards urban sustainability through architecture and social innovation for over 10 years. William has led community building projects for the homeless, slum dwellers and refugees around the world. A recent UNICEF ambassador, he's a headline TEDx speaker and he's named by Forbes magazine on their 30 under 30 list. Recently, he founded a plastic waste circular economy initiative that educates youth in design thinking and STEM skills which was presented at the 2018 UN General Assembly. This year, William featured at number 19 of 100 Inspiring Australians as part of the Qantas Centenary and in the top 25 most influential people in the Australian social sector by Pro Bono Australia. He volunteers at Maroubra Beach as a surf lifesaver and is recognised as a national leader through Surf Lifesaving Australia's National Leadership College. We came across William when he was a 2019 finalist in the Western City University Academic Achievement Award. So, William, welcome to the podcast today. Yeah, absolute pleasure, William. As I said, it was a bit of a short notice thing. So, yeah, really appreciate you jumping on and having this chat. And I wanted to get started by just asking you where your passion kind of lies because that bio has so many different elements and so many things that you're involved with. Yeah, it's interesting that you uh, mentioned I was uh, involved in the Academic Achievement Award. Uh, a lot of my uh, work uh, could have ended up fitting in the other categories. Yeah. Um, that's on offer through the awards program, uh, from science to technology to uh, social impacts and community service. Uh, I, I, f- I feel a lot of um, my passions uh, stem from actually trying to make a difference. Um, a lot of what I do is really about um, creating the greatest impact, uh, specifically around how we can design for dignity um, in our cities. Uh, with my background in architecture, it's been something that I've been looking at in terms of from a social and environmental lens. And it's uh, having, uh, during my university years, having had the chance to actually uh, work in uh, slums in uh, South Africa and India, that really uh, heightened my understanding of the direct impact that people's living spaces and the built environment can have in terms of uh, improving and uplifting um, our communities. Uh, You know, we're all surrounded by buildings and by architecture and the environment and uh, navigating that, especially during this time where uh, there's a stronger focus, uh, much more on our changing climate as well as the natural environment uh, is something that I'm uh, very much interested in pursuing. Yeah, for sure. And for me, when I think sustainability, you know, not being an expert in, the, in that area at all, you're right. I do think more, you know, inv- natural environment um, and, you know, things like fossil fuels and those kind of topics that come up a lot in the media and that is really interesting to think about from a built environment and from architecture and how that plays a part. So that must have been so interesting to, to be in South Africa and India. Can you tell us, um, before I kind of go into that, did you, where, you grew up in Sydney, is that right? 
Uh, so I um, grew up uh, in Brisbane, actually, and moved to okay. Sydney um, uh, to study uh, university um, in Sydney. And I've been in Sydney ever since. So really, um, for about 12, 12 years now. Yeah. So growing up in Australia, Brisbane and Sydney, and then was it some serious culture shock being in slums in South Africa and India? It was. It was absolutely um, quite confronting, actually, uh, seeing uh, the living conditions uh, with uh, raw sewage, kind of open um, infrastructure uh, that was literally just on the streets uh, and being exposed to the lack of water sanitation amenity, uh, particularly, but also in terms of the lack of um, adequate shelter, especially uh, in areas like this where you have a lot of transient populations and a lot mm. of um, highly uh, dense uh, pe- uh, populations living in close proximity to each other. There are a lot of problems in terms of also the politics that go on in local communities in terms of urban governance and how policies and decisions are being made um, even um, in an informal settlement. So being a part of that uh, learning and seeing firsthand um, how the skills of an architect in terms of design thinking and creatively solving problems uh, directly with the community and with the users was something where, you know, I I learnt a lot in terms of those kind of facilitation skills, but also how to uh, empower uh, communities from a human rights perspective. Um, you know, from a bottom up um, to really ensure that they're the ones who are leading and uh, very much so that they're the ones who uh, know what their own um, issues are in terms of their living environments and how they can solve solve that. Yeah. Is that a common issue? I mean, I assume it is that, say, a government or, or you know, other contractor comes in to, to do one of these projects and improve the infrastructure, but they haven't properly you know, are consulted with the actual people who live there who use those facilities? Absolutely. So in uh, South Africa, um, the city of Johannesburg actually uh, uh, had started upgrading um, the the township. Uh, I worked in Deep Sloot, which was the most notorious township in Joburg, and they had started getting bulldozers in and uh, basically flattening the the informal settlements and instead uh, then replacing the the informal housing with these concrete two-story um, houses um, on blocks and had fences around them and no one wanted to live in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting when you don't consult with a community community and engage in terms of what their actual needs are and uh, put a top-down solution, that doesn't really work because we have to understand that uh, that these communities exist um, and it's not just the physical, it's not just that environment that they're living in, but very much so about the social, very much about their, their community and those relationships that they have and how we can actually uh, see that as an opportunity, as a positive opportunity to then really enhance enhance it. Um, And this particular scenario, uh, I actually was lucky enough to go back five years on from my first uh, 
time working with the community there and uh, the government has had to change their tactics um you know for us in terms of uh, upgrading um the public toilets there are only public toilets um in in the slum community um we also had to evolve how we were measuring impact and success and we had to use smart technologies uh ended up installing sensors to mm-hmm. toilets that had been upgraded and then also putting sensors to those who to toilets who uh, which hadn't been upgraded yet um just to look at you know how much water was leaking out um how much uh, energy are we saving how much how much use does it actually get by the community um and by doing so we were able to basically ensure that we had the right evidence to show the local council the local government um so that we can actually prove that you know the work we're doing is is um having an impact to people and i think you know that's very powerful in terms of not just a method of for the government to actually say need evidence in terms of um providing funding you know for me i thought you know surely we've got new toilets in they were functional they're safe women are using them that that's always a good outcome but it turned out that you know when we're dealing with bureaucracies and governments that uh they don't really care so much in terms of these stories and those narratives about the people's experience they just want to know do you have the evidence do you have the data to show that this is working and what is working and you know we we had to change tacks because of that um and it was just fantastic going back and being able to you know see that they had installed um street signs you know um that they were giving the place a sense of dignity in terms of here's an address you know you the community lives at an address it's not just um a site on the peripheral of the city where um it's forgotten and i think that's an interesting point you made about you know whether it's governments but or big corporations whatever it is that you know um quantitative data is so is what they use but that only tells so much and you really need the qualitative data to tell the full story and get the actual human experience i mean you know i i i, I do understand uh the importance of that and actually um having uh that uh quantitative evidence but at the same time you know you know i i kind of also appreciate that it's it's so important that these decision makers and stakeholders actually go down to yeah. visit and see for themselves and actually talk to the community actually talk to the users actually see the new the new solutions that's been put in and actually uh you know create those relationships to work out you know how they're measuring success that is potentially even more important um the qualitative narrative um because they're coming from people they're coming from the actual users at the so this phrase uh, design for dignity can you tell me a bit more about that you know did you come across that phrase is it something um that you were always passionate about or you discovered it and that kind of linked in with your you know your values how did that i used that term design for dignity uh to really look at how um vulnerable communities can be involved can participate but also have a voice yeah. uh in terms of city making in terms of how 
their livelihoods um, are affected by the environment, whether that's housing, say here in Sydney, affordability, tackling um, homelessness uh, locally in our backyard, to um, water sanitation, to having basic access to infrastructure and seeing elements that we might take for granted, uh, say here in Sydney, um, are actually uh, not accessible in other places in the world and uh, to really focus on not just providing a solution but providing a solution that actually gives people a sense of dignity in terms of um, their their value and their involvement and their participation in society. Talking about uh, a public toilets in, in a township in South Africa, it's not just about... Um, you know, making sure that the plumbing works, that uh, the toilet flushes, that the water gets flushed down to proper infrastructure and isn't leaking. It really is also then taking into account, you know, do women, do children feel safe mm. in these uh, in these uh, facilities? Um, and a lot of um, women uh, in the past wouldn't go, they would go somewhere else because... Uh, being public toilets, they're unsafe. It's, you know, it's not a very dignified way to be able to uh, to live in that way. So, you know, we worked with the local community to, especially with um, with uh, women in, um, in the local area to see how can we actually make sure that they felt that these facilities were also for them and specifically design around that. And I think, you know, design can really be that tool that helps. You know, we talk about design thinking more and more in a business sense for companies and corporations to uh, be able to address future disruptions that we have. But at the same time, it's the perfect tool uh, to be using to actually work with people. Yeah, for sure. You know, speaking about here in Sydney and um those kind of projects in our backyard, as you, you know, you said it, I like that term. I think some people, you know, may not want to speculate, but take space for granted, whether it's their personal space in their home, public community spaces, you know, how does that play a role with, you know, marginalised communities? And, and as you said, you know, um, that feeling of dignity. You know, we've seen a lot of uh, willpower over the past few months um, because of the COVID-19 um, pandemic. Yeah. In terms of the types of action and changes that can happen when uh, governments and leaders, decision makers want to create that change. And at the same time, on the other side, we've seen how communities come together uh, potentially making sacrifices for others. Um, so that's um, working as a team, if you want to call it that, uh, so that uh, we can go through a crisis together. It's become very important, the value of our public spaces and what, what is public in our city. Um, with a lot of people in lockdown, in isolation, it's more than ever before, it's been so critical that we actually have that provision of high quality spaces outside of our house um, that we can hopefully within a five minute walk um, and that's something that doesn't isn't accessible to everyone in Australia uh, in terms of parks uh, uh, small laneways where we can decompress where we can exercise where we can get some fresh air where we can just leave 
our homes. And I feel the past few months has really revealed this as a big issue. Um, and a good example is how governments were very quick to um, react and look at uh, supporting uh, homeless uh, populations in our cities, uh, particularly ensuring that they uh, there were, wasn't a viral transmission, but um, cities in Sydney, Melbourne and Perth actually took it a step further and it ended up um, housing them and putting them in, ho in hotel rooms during um, the initial lockdown period. And it's interesting because then there were news that came out um, that a lot of these populations um, ended up then moving back onto the streets. Mm. Um, and I'm a big believer in terms of the housing first concept that uh, the only way that we can really solve homelessness in our urban areas is for homeless people to be housed. You know, I, I, I don't really um, champion other solutions that really manage homelessness and keeps people out on the street, whether that's temporary short-term emergency responses um, that we still see as um, the main solution in our cities in Australia. The interesting thing about these people is if you were to look at then the other side of the spectrum in terms of international arrivals coming back to Australia and then putting being forced into quarantine also in hotel rooms for two weeks, they also complained as well. They didn't enjoy having the four walls and the roof above their heads because they didn't have the freedoms. They didn't have the basic rights. We tackle problems like this just simply by, okay, here's a problem. Let's put them into hotel rooms. There you go. You've got your shelter. We're forgetting about the dignity um, in terms of the human dignity involved in terms of the human experience. And even if we weren't in a hotel room and didn't have that experience, even if we were locked up in our own homes, in our apartments, we realise that, that our homes are more than just the four walls that we have. Our homes and where we live is, takes on the space outside of that. It takes on the public spaces that we can have access to and what's walkable and what is um, immediately within our, in proximity to our doorstep. And we, if we can't access good healthcare, education, uh, quality um, uh, places where we can work, that's close enough. Um, and at the same time, you know, all of these other spaces so we can connect with others so um, we're not just stuck um, inside that that's really part of um, how we live and I kind of feel uh, you know we need to address that we need to really understand that uh, our homes are not just our physical house it includes a lot of that the social um, but also the urban design factors that um, makes a city livable for sure I'm sure that's um, actually resonating with a lot of people William more so now than it would have last year because the lockdown was a bit of an equaliser in terms of everyone was confined to their own spaces and getting a small glimpse into the what it's like to not have access to all that space uh, and, and those kind of facilities and, and wherever you want. You know, if, I'm not sure if, because uh, I'm in Melbourne, I'm not sure if these um, stories made their way to you over there in Sydney, but there's a few examples that came to mind. Like uh, I believe it was like around Northcote in Brunswick and you know, in the city of Melbourne, where there wasn't a lot of parkland 
uh, and wide open public spaces. People were um, just going into the local golf course because there was a golf course there, but it's private. Um, and basically they just made it not private. And it was, you know, a great example of, well, these people, they needed somewhere that was, yeah, beyond their small four walls that they could get at, get that fresh air that you so you know eloquently talked about that you said it a lot better than me, but the way that they were able to then enjoy some parkland and it and just shows how important that is. That's right. And I think especially now during a health crisis that our environments, our built environments and how we, how we do planning um, in our cities, that has a big role to play in terms of our health and that those kind of outcomes beyond taking precautions and, uh, you know, actually understanding that getting people outside physically active and actually um, still being able to go on runs or for their children to play in a playground is critical in terms of not just how we uh, socialise and not just for our mental health but also for our physical health and, you know, both the mental side and the physical side are elements that have suffered um, um, personally, even for me. You know, I've uh, gained weight around my belly um, during the lockdown because I was just sitting every day and it was just inside and I started then um, going for runs uh, during uh, my lunch break um, just to break up the monotony during the day. Um, and I feel there is a bigger... Uh, discussion that needs to be had in terms of how do we come out uh, and instead of only being uh, quite reactive, um, actually um, look at more holistically the strategy and what kind of lifestyles, what kind of livelihoods we want to have as a community and start planning and start implementing those kind of actions that are longer term. In terms of how are we planning our future parks, our um, future spaces. Now, as as more as density becomes uh, a bigger issue, and people are living in uh, in closer proximity to each other, I think it's very important that um, you know these kind of public spaces actually come to the fore, and, and not just spaces, but what other public amenity are there that can actually support higher density communities and that type of living. Mm, that's so interesting. There's so many facets of that whole conversation. I think you could have a whole uh, podcast series on it. <laughs> you know what I mean? But um, look, another thing I wanted to ask you about, William, and you know, I think this is connected, so I don't think we're taking too big of a leap. But um, in terms of uh, you know, casting your mind back to 2019 when you were a finalist in the Seven New Australian mm. Achieve Awards, the project you were working on then, um, would you be happy to talk about that as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess learning from my experiences in Australia, working with homeless uh, population, doing a lot of research uh, towards new models um, uh, of supportive housing as well as um, the housing first concept um, and now more so in Sydney on housing affordability in general and, you know, how our cities can be equitable and accessible for all. I've been... um, lucky uh, enough to have the opportunity to work on my own project uh, looking at refugee camps and seeing the global refugee crisis as uh, a way of bringing dignified living um, 
for refugees who uh, have been inserted into their host communities in a country that they uh, potentially didn't even um, choose and, or, or, and had the choice of um, dealing with. So I uh, had spent uh, two years working in Greece, uh, refugee camps on Lesbos, which is the main uh, course of arrival into Europe um, mm -hmm. from the Mediterranean, from Turkey, where refugees would be coming from Syria, Afghanistan, um, Iraq and Iran. And also working in an urban context within Athens uh, in two of the camps over there, uh, looking at how I could apply this experience and that kind of approach, the community-orientated approach that I'd learnt in informal communities and settlements into um, people who have been displaced forcibly. Yeah. Uh, working within these refugee camps, uh, it was um, quite eye-opening in terms of understanding their stories um, individually, how a lot of people within a couple of months had picked up English. Most of them uh, had accessed Netflix and YouTube videos using the refugee camp's Wi-Fi and learning it on their phones, yeah, which, wow. you know, really makes sense because if... Especially, you know, the younger generations. Um, if I was to learn something, I would also go to YouTube to learn it. And, you know, it's no different. And a lot of kind of understanding how technology is in some ways creating a bigger division in our societies at the same time is also empowering people to have that agency to determine um, their own future and their own education in a very challenging and confronting environment. And um, I ended up basically working with young refugees and seeing kind of how, um, you know, what, uh, what were the biggest challenges that they were facing in terms of being in this environment. Um, and they were able to tell me that plastic waste was actually a huge issue in terms of um, living there. And you have to remember that a lot of these refugees, um, they're not there short term. It's not temporary you know, a so lot of come in to the refugee camp and then be placed somewhere else. It doesn't really work like that because, um, you know, it takes years, even if we look at um, the Australian system of how we actually um, process asylum seekers. You know, it can take three to five years. Um, and in other refugee camps, say in, in other parts of the world, including in Africa, you know, generations grow up. I ended up working alongside a young refugee, um, basically my age, who was born into a refugee camp and still lives in that refugee camp. Ended up spending 30, 40 years, you know, lifetimes um, in these places. And that also, you know, made me think about how can we actually rethink these kind of uh, environments, um, these sites, these shelters, housing, um, and instead of seeing them as temporary uh, places for people to move in and out, actually see, well, could they be more permanent? Um, you know, with my research looking at um, homeless uh, populations, it's so important that they actually have a stable environment so they can actually start... Um, uh, that space, the physical space, but the mental space as well to start um, 
looking at uh, what areas that they can actually explore and actually what opportunities so that they can reach their own potentials. And, you know, I feel the same can be applied to uh, refugee communities in terms of seeing how they can be more embedded into their host communities. But, but even to take that further, to see whether or not these um, places could be hubs of innovation where young people can actually continue to learn, be educated, but at the same time start scanning those skills which are critical for their future, these future skills in problem-solving, critical thinking, creativity. I also was interested to know what other architects were doing, local Greek architects were doing to support refugees during the crisis. And I found that they were actually creating uh, maker spaces and fab labs. Uh, and so on Lesbos actually had one of the refugee shelters and it had computers and 3D printers, laser cutters, so that uh, the young refugees could actually learn how to design and 3D print useful and meaningful items for themselves. Uh, so I saw the opportunity, ended up actually working with um, the young refugees to develop a STEM curriculum where plastic waste um, could be collected um, from the camps and they would learn about the environment and about um, different resources and that kind of value and using an open source uh, machine that would then heat the little uh, bits of um, the plastic bottle that had been cut up um, would heat it up and then actually extrude that material into the 3D printing filament that would then be added to a 3D printer in these exist existing programs. Is this kind of addressing that plastic issue you're talking about, turning that into learning and absolutely that's awesome. So it was really not about kind of seeing how I could mimic. And, you know, I, it wasn't really about reinventing the wheel. You know, there were all these fantastic local Greek professionals who were uh, playing a very key role towards um, the, that technology and the education. And for me, it was just seeing um, that there was a problem with the plastic waste and seeing how we can actually start um, in terms of a circular economy, start tackling pollution and waste in our environment but at the same time teaching um, the young refugees of that value of the skills that they had learned, but why this process is important. I ended up actually during the workshop, show them the plastic bottle that we've picked up together um, and then show them the more pieces that had been cut up of that plastic bottle and ask, you know, what is the value of these things? You know, that, well, they're waste, they would say. Um, and then show them the 3D filaments that we've extruded and say, well, what about this? Is there a value to this? Could we actually sell this? Up until they've actually designed, say, their own locks for their doors um, to their shelters using that material. And then, you know, when I hold up the lock or whatever product it is, and like, what about this value? Not just in terms of the economic value of the actual object that they've 3D printed, but what about also the educational value and the skills that they've learned that they have agency to solve their own problems 
um, using the tools that's provided. And I think, you know, you provide dignity by not uh, telling uh, people that this is the way you should be doing things, but actually let, letting them to solve and work it out themselves in a way where they can feel like they they have ownership and that they are able to use open source tools and technologies that can deliver on that ownership and flexibility. William, that's an incredible story. There's just like such an amazing and beautiful learning from that in terms of problem solving and how so often we're thinking this problem we've got, we need to invent a way to solve it. But what you've outlined there is such a lovely way of thinking about it. There's solutions out there. There's people doing great work and it's about connecting the dots, not reinventing the wheel, as you said, to solve a problem. And there's just so many, you know, lovely outcomes from that. So thank you yeah, for sharing that story. Thank you so much. And I also feel a lot of these uh, potential solutions to, I guess, what I call wicked problems, really difficult problems that potentially could take a long time, um, they do require an understanding um, that it has to be collaborative, it has to be working with the people as partners, as collaborators, and at the same time that, you know, these solutions have to be challenging uh, the status quo, but also challenging silos. They have to be interdisciplinary. This project isn't just about the refugee crisis. It's actually also solving an environmental um, problem of mm. single-use plastics, right? It's also teaching future skills in terms of technologies and how... Uh, these technologies are going to give them the soft skills that hopefully will allow them to thrive um, in their next journey, whether they end up going to school, to university, um, working and having a job. These skills are going to be helpful for them. Um, and then obviously there's uh, the component in terms of just uh, you know, being young people and ensuring that they're having fun at the same time, that they're actually learning by doing and and being able to see that entire process and be able to design um, their own objects uh, physically. Um, you know, I think one of the best skills uh, that I've learned to be more appreciative because of my background is, you know, in architecture, what we do is the physical, is tangible. Our buildings, our environments, you can touch them and, they're constructing and if we were to apply that to other situations in terms of the types of solutions, um, it ha for me it has to be grounded in terms of it being physical and having a real-world impact um, rather than just being ideas, rather than it just being thoughts, leadership, um, or for it just being a concept or for it um, being uh, left in a report. I can imagine people want to know more about it's just that's just so you know, multifaceted. Is this what your uh, TEDx talk was you know, essentially about? Last year, I was invited to present a TEDx talk um, as part of TEDx Sydney in their youth uh, section, and it was an incredible opportunity. And at the beginning, I wasn't sure if I was even prepared to. Uh, really share the work because it was it's still in a very in, infant stage in terms of developing 
the program and working with the right partners. But that talk actually was really about just sharing the concepts around uh, children's rights and empowerment and the potential of these young refugees and really telling that story to an Australian audience. Because during that period, you know, it, it was challenging to kind of see what was going on with the refugee crisis from an Australian response. That experience in Europe also changed my understanding of, I guess, our generation and how we respond to crises like this and I think we've seen again how we're tackling and trying to address the climate crisis and now even with um, the pandemic um, the health crisis um, what sort of innovative thinking that uh, young people are able to um, engage and be able to distill and empower um, within their own communities. Yeah for sure I think you're right. We have seen that the younger generations have, you know, I don't think they would have been labelled, we would have been, have not been labelled resilient previously, I don't think. But I think this has shown that we are resilient and, as you said, innovative and using innovation as a way to to show resilience and come up with new solutions and, and get through this tough time. So in terms of the TEDx talk, just before I forget, if someone wants to view that, what's the best way? They can just Google your name and TEDx? Yeah, they can just, uh, the talk's on TED.com. So uh, if you're already subscribed um, to listening to TED Talks as uh, on your podcast. Uh. Yeah, great. William, I've, yeah, I've loved this chat. Um, if, you know, I thought that I was fairly informed or, or knowledgeable about, you know, refugees, the issues that they face, but you've just opened my eyes up to new ways of looking at you know, it's such a big issue, but I think sometimes in Australia we are a little bit misinformed or misguided in a way about our views on refugees and, and and migrants. And sometimes I think we need to look at it as how much of an asset it can be to our country and our life to have people coming in with different experiences, different skills. Yeah, keeping that as a temporary, you know, thing and, and forced, you know, that's a good word to describe it. That if that, that if that has to happen, why can't we look at it differently? Upskill, give knowledge, empower people, give dignity, and it would just be a better outcome for everyone. And it's interesting. Through my TED talk, I did have um, critics actually comment and say, you know, why why are we trying to make refugee camps uh, permanent? Shouldn't we just close them down? I guess sure. Like if we were to have this quite idealistic view of all these problems that we have in the world that you know why don't we just stop stop it but it is so much more complex than that and for us to actually kind of I guess in terms of informal settlements you could also go why don't we just provide housing for everyone like like how the city of Johannesburg started and it's not really these aren't really solutions because these are very top-down views in terms of the problems and not really working directly with the communities um, and recognising that, um, you know, there is potential. You know, these, you know, these type of solutions aren't short-term. I'm not saying, uh, um, you know, we can help improve your camp um, temporarily and make, make your, your, your livelihoods and your living areas better, but it's actually changing how we view refugees not as um, not as people who are 
you know, who need handouts, really, who need aid and um, need humanitarian supplies, but actually see they're continuing with their lives, you know, they're going to school. Some of the refugees are finding work, you know, in Greece, uh, they are able to access employment opportunities that, you know, we shouldn't see just because they live in a certain area or they're called refugees. Yeah, man, it's, uh, it is really interesting stuff. And I just hope that some people listening, yeah, get a lot out of this kind of chat we've had. I've got certainly got a lot out of it. So thanks for making the time this morning, William. You know, we've plugged the TEDx talk. If anyone wants to connect with you in another way, do you, um, yeah, what would you, how would you say they can do that? Uh, yeah, you can. Um, I'm quite active on Twitter, so feel free uh, to find me over there. Uh, my handle is at HYWilliamChan. Yeah, very easy to find. <laughs> That's just your name. That's lovely. So, yeah, <laughs> thanks. thank you. Um, and for anyone listening, they, uh, we'll put that link to the TEDx talk and to your Twitter handle in the show notes as well. So, yeah, we'll look forward to following uh, onto your progress, your journey and your story, William, because there's going to be so many interesting things to come. I can tell. Thank you so much, Josh. No worries. I hope you enjoyed our interview. Join us each week as we talk with ordinary Australians achieving extraordinary things. If you know someone's making a difference, then you can contact us through our Instagram page, inspirational.australians, or head to our website, www.awardsaustralia.com, and you can nominate them to help spread their story and share their message. Awards Australia is a family-owned Australian business. Our awesome producer, Annette, is my mum. And the other podcast host, Jeff, is my dad. We proudly aim to make a difference in the lives of Australians. And we thank our corporate and not-for-profit partners for making our awards programs possible. Would your business like to know how to get involved? Contact us now. See our details in the show notes. Please subscribe to our podcast so you won't miss an episode. And please share this episode with your network to pay it forward. Who doesn't like to hear a positive good news story? We'd also greatly appreciate it if you review and rate the series as well. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next week, stay safe and remember, together we make a difference. Thanks for joining us today on the Inspirational Australians podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening and have been inspired by ordinary Australians achieving extraordinary things. So it's goodbye for another week. Remember, Together, we make a difference.